Hello, Internet. This is Jerry Gagosian, and this is AM Art Radio. You haven't heard from me in about two or three weeks, which I don't have a good excuse for, except it's the pandemic. And <laughs> the pandemic is depressing AF. So um, I haven't really felt like talking to anyone, to be honest. Um, but my darling friend and uh, guest today, Sarah Hoover, basically rallied me out of my slumpy depression to give you guys part two of what we promised last time I interviewed her. So she's here today, today, tonight with us, uh, all the way from New York. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Uh, I'm the host. I think I'm supposed to ask you that question first. Okay. All right. We can start with that. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm well. I, I remain feeling pretty lucky that I don't have corona and no one in my family has corona. So it could be worse, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one in my family has corona, but my both my mother and my brother are healthcare workers and oh my goodness um well no the good thing is is that my mom works at a private hospital for people who are like long term on ventilators so there's not really any cases of corona that way right um because they're not going anywhere <laughs> that's right. awful to say um and then my brother just signed a contract and he's literally moving on Monday to North Dakota to Whoa. go <laughs> to go and work at a hospital up there. And they don't have very many cases of Corona in North Dakota because it's North Dakota. <laughs> yeah, there aren't that many people there. <laughs> no, there's not that many. It was so funny because um, the other night I was like, okay, you're moving to North Dakota. I was like, let's Yelp the restaurants in North Dakota. And actually, I was surprised. They have like pho restaurants and they have sushi restaurants and they have like pretty decent pizza places. And like they have like a lot of things in North Dakota. I was um, I was surprised. And then I had to put my uh, coastal elitism to the side and acknowledge that I'd been a prejudice. Yeah. I mean, have you ever been to North Dakota? Actually, I have because my mom is from North Dakota originally. Got it. Um, <clears throat> but she's from like this very small farming town um, that ha that used to be super like incredibly thriving. Like actually, my family sort of helped um, build the entire town. Uh, my family immigrated from Norway in 1917 and helped develop this town and so like literally you go through it and it's like there's the bank that grandpa built and there's the nursing home that grandpa built and there's the elementary school and all these different things and back in the 40s 50s 60s and 70s it was like this incredible town and then when uh, farming became industrialized, like so many other things in the United States, um, and all the young people started leaving, this entire town just got frozen in time and 
basically is like disintegrating. It's like an aging population. There's, there's like maybe a thousand people left. And this was like a decent sized town back in the day. So, um, yeah, I have been to North Dakota. Um, but I had a different opinion of what it was. Cause like when I go to my mom's hometown, there's like one bar and it's like in a trailer. <laughs> oh my God. There's like one, there's like a movie theater that's open like twice a week. There's like a hardware store and, yeah. and there's a pizza hut. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So uh, good, good Midwestern roots. Um, aren't you, where are you from again? You're from, I'm from Indiana. You're from Indiana. Yes. But you don't have a Southern accent. I do not, but both my parents do. Oh, really? Yeah. How did they end up in Indiana? Um, My mother's family moved there when she was in high school. She was, she grew up in Texas um, for her father's work. And my dad grew up in Southern Indiana where his family had been for like many generations. And they both went to law school in Indianapolis, and then they stayed there after law school. Was there was there ever the option on the table that you would stay there? Um, stay there, probably not, because I really wanted to leave. Like, I was really itching to have an experience of going to school in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's it's not too far out of the realm of possibility that I would live there at some point in my life. And I've thought about um, maybe like going back there now that I have a family or something like that. And it's just never felt like correct timing or like the really right move, but I'm Mm -hmm. not against it. I mean, I really loved growing up there and I really like visiting and I still have, um, one of my siblings is still there. My parents are there most of the year. So I, you know, there are compelling reasons to go there and I'm from Indianapolis, which is a pretty big city. It's like a, you know, size about a million people so it's not like I'd be stuck somewhere super rural and really different mm-hmm. so yeah I've thought about it I mean I I'm currently very happy just visiting though yeah do you remember like what movies I love asking people this question like what movies or tv shows or what music or what books you read that made you think like I need to go to New York well, one of my favorite books ever is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and I don't know if that made me want to move to New York because it's set in, like, a very different time period, but, um, yeah, I mean, I read, like, even, like, The Great Gatsby. I feel like everything I read as a kid really romanticized and glamorized New York City, and mm-hmm. I went to visit New York um, when I was looking at colleges because... Oh, you know what? I Well, I was a uh, ballerina in middle school and high school, and I did a summer program in New York for dance, for ballet, um, and I, like, loved being there for that, but, of course, didn't have all the freedom that I would have had mm-hmm. I been in college or something, and then I went back to look at the schools that were there, thinking if I went to college in New York, I could continue my dance training. And I was there on like a warm September weekend and a friend who was older than me in school went to NYU and he walked me around Greenwich Village and it was so magical. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to come here. And then the the following winter, 
I got into school and I moved to New York and I, the winter that I moved to New York was the coldest winter in like 30 years. And there were terrible snowstorms and the city, I don't know if it was their mismanagement or what, but the way they piled the snow up um, after plowing the streets was to just kind of like push it onto the sidewalks. And there were these massive tunnels of snow that was like, I don't know, probably five feet high. So you were just constant for months walking through these tunnels of ice and snow and like unable to see the sky. And I was like, what have I fucking done? This is not the <laughs> beautiful, sunny, like romantic felicity mm -hmm. New York city that I thought I was getting. Yeah. Now, see, of course, go oh, ahead. what? I was just going to say now, of course we have global warming and it hasn't snowed really this winter, but it was yeah. a hard, hard entry. That, yeah, I, oh my God, same basically for me. I, the first time I went to New York, I was <clears throat> 17 and I, I just remember like a lot of 80s movies about um, New York and just thinking like at 80s and 90s and I loved like, I always liked music when I was young that was like maybe a little older for my taste. So, or for you know for my age um mm -hmm. and so and I remember like music videos and just thinking like New York has got to be like the greatest coolest place on earth ever and then the first time I went to New York I was 17 and it was 2001 and it was summertime and it was uh no no sorry it was 2002 and it was like not even a year since 9-11 had happened and um, because it was 9-11, um, I don't know how, but I convinced my mom when I was 17 that I could take a Greyhound bus from Florida to New York because I was too scared to fly to go visit my godfather. And she like let me go with my childhood best friend. And so we took this bus. And I remember like listening to my headphones, like my CD player and like riding into New York on this bus and like getting off at um, Port Authority and my godfather was there and then he like took me and my childhood best friend to the West Village like out for like Indian food or something and then we like went and we were walking around and literally like in the span of like two hours I met Tyson Beckford. Do you remember him? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I met Tyson Beckford. Um, highlight of my life. I have a picture of me wearing some like very Paris Hilton-esque looking like Prada sunglasses, taking a picture with Tyson Beckford. Met him. My best friend at the time got her nose pierced like without her parents' permission. It was a big deal. And we walked like through the set of like a, like a Maybelline commercial or something. Um, and I mean, I really thought like New York was, I thought every single day in New York would be like that if I lived there. Like Aww. I was sure. And I ended up having this like amazing 10 day trip there. He like gave me bus pass and he was like, he was like, just call me. I, I, this is like back when we had cell phones, you know, like just regular old like dial cell. He was like, call me if you get lost. But if you're not lost, don't call me because he was like an ad exec and like didn't want to deal with me. 
um, bothering him. And so Caroline, my friend and I, we just like explored New York for 10 days. We had like Metro car subway card and we had this amazing time. So I always knew like, okay, I'm going to move back to New York one day. Like I'm going to do it. And then I moved to New York when I was like 27 and same story. Like I actually, when I actually like moved into New York, I was like living in this $750 a month, like former DJ booth that somebody was renting as a bedroom <laughs> in Bed-Stuy, like literally above a punk bar and next to the train. So it was like not peaceful. There was like no heat. It was like the, the like worst like beginning of living in New York ever. And I would like call my mom and be like, why the fuck did I move here? I need to move home. And I was working like three jobs at the time. And it was just like a very, very, very rough beginning in New York. Um, but, you know, magic does happen there. Like I stand by that. Like there is something you kind of like never know what's going to happen. There's kind of that even still I'm 34 now and I'm like, you never know what's going to happen. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know what you're going to find. It's still like a walking city where you can go exploring and like turn a corner and go down some steps. And like suddenly you're in some experimental art space and somebody's like offering you like champagne at, you know, 11 a.m. <laughs> well, that is one of the really special things about New York City. And like, I don't know, I feel like most New Yorkers at some point in college or something we're forced to read Jane Jacobs and we all know that the really special thing about these like thriving metropolises that are so unique is the ability to come into contact with so many different kinds of people mm -hmm. no matter what neighborhood you're in and to have such kind of diversity at your fingertips and I think like New Yorkers have this rap for being um hardcore and kind of rude but I also think that they're by and large, pretty empathetic because you're used to dealing with people from all walks of life in your daily, daily routines. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you don't necessarily get in cities like where I'm from, or probably North Dakota that um, are a little bit more mm -hmm. segregated and where you don't have that kind of street life where you're seeing people from mm -hmm. different backgrounds. I don't remember if I asked you this last time, but <clears throat> It it may have even been, you said that you went to a lot of museums with your grandfather, right? When you were a mm -hmm. child? But well, yes. Yeah. I mean, I just went to one museum with him because that's all that Indianapolis had, but I went often. Oh, okay. But do you remember um, contemporary art? Um, do you remember what you saw for the first time where you, were, where you sort of got hooked, where you realized like, oh, this is a thing. I need to be a part of this. Um. Yes, but it was very late. The first contemporary museum exhibition that I saw that I thought was really mind-blowing was Matthew Barney at the Guggenheim, and I don't remember the year. but um, I think that was 2006 or something? Yeah, that, that maybe. I, I, I don't remember, but it was, like, amazing, and I was totally blown away. Um, I mean, he, like, covered the banister in Vaseline, and I watched 
the Cree Master Cycle movie, and I just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that someone had created all of that out of their minds, and it felt so brave. And I had another kind of many years before that, I had had a kind of life changing moment in terms of music. Um, when I heard Philip Glass play live and I was probably like 12 or 13 and I thought that my mind was like blown open. I, I didn't know music could sound like that. And I sort of felt the same way when I saw Matthew Barney's work. Like I didn't really know that art could have that possibility. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting because I have to confess something to you. Uh, I would say that it was Creme Master for me that totally changed my perception of art and of the world in a similar way I except I didn't see it at the Guggenheim I was studying in Norway and we went to the the Ostrup Farnley um, which is like their modern art museum and they had the creme master cycle playing in some room and in the in the main room actually it was a jeff Koontz retrospective and i remember like i didn't get the jeff Koontz thing yet you know like it it was only sort of setting in for me like the novel idea that something could look like a pool toy but it and and look like it's suspended in the air by nothing but it's actually like aluminum and you know airbrushed um but I just kind of felt like oh okay that's cool um but then I remember going into the room and watching creme master four I believe it was the one that with the woman that had the um had the clear prosthetics on her feet or her on her legs and he was like half naked and painted white and I and I just remember that I was there with like a bunch of other you know idiots you know we were like a bunch of like hyper horny 21 year olds and you know it takes a lot when you're that age to like sit down and be quiet and be with a piece of art And I remember going into a room where it was playing and I didn't even know video art existed. Like that's how long it like took me to understand. And I sat and I watched the whole thing. Like it was like an hour or something. And I remember I bought, I like totally, it like hooked me. I bought the book. I bought the poster. Like suddenly, you know, if you came to my dorm room, like, I was the girl with the Matthew Barney poster in her bedroom. (laughs) I mean, I think that's great. And I think it's like such a shame because um, for a lot of people, like for me who didn't have a lot of contemporary art where I grew up, our first experiences are, you know, these kind of one-time things in museums when we're visiting somewhere and they're totally life-changing. But so many like women and minorities have been left out of having these major museum exhibitions and you just as hard as it is to find out about kind of or as hard as it was I mean it's probably really different now in the age of the internet but as hard as it was for us to find our way into contemporary art Mm -hmm. I think it's really prohibitive for people to find art that is you know about 
not white men if all they're yeah. doing is having like you know a couple times a year access to a really fine museum and it's just it's really interesting because these mu- museums in a lot of ways for like the general population decide what we all know about art right and mm-hmm. they decide such a kind of biased narrative for all of us mm-hmm yeah, I mean, um, like I love have... Barney. Don't get me wrong; it's awesome that he got us into this world. But I didn't see a major installation by a female artist in for years after that. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't. I think the most major museum show of a female artist I didn't see until I saw like the Marlene Dumas show in LA. I don't know years later, and mm-hmm. the retrospective and. I mean, I'm sure I missed many things. I wasn't really in the art world yet. I was really young, but like, I, I think it's just a shame that there have been, you know, so many years of this kind of biased version of art history being um, displayed in museums. Yeah. Well, yes, I totally agree with you. And I do want to actually talk about that with you on this episode, because as you know, via my Instagram and our text exchange, I sort of um, had a little bit of a brain hemorrhage this week because I have all this extra time and, or actually I don't, I'm kind of busy, but I'm reading a lot right now. And I sort of went backwards in time to 2018 when our problems were different. And I started reading the, um, there's an agency in New York, um, I think it's called Art Partners Agency. And they had done a a major study um, across all of the major American art institutions to find out uh, what was in their permanent collections and what what they deaccession and the rate at which they deaccession these things and then how much money they spend on women artists versus male artists. And then they also did a similar... uh, survey where they were trying to understand what is being sold at auction and surprise surprise women and 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 this isn't funny money this is big big money so like you know women um are being sold you know these auctions for example these major fucking auctions it's two percent women and it really upset me when i realized and, and they were talking about their permanent collections. And it's like, it's that same sad, very low statistic. It's like, it's like under 10% of like, um, in 2018, like permanent uh, women in permanent art collections, like they're just not there. And I got really upset this week, because then I go on all of these major institutions, like social medias, and they try to act so woke and like be cute and make memes and, you know, talk about women artists and talk about artists of color and all these different things. And it's like, no, because your permanent collection clearly says differently. And to put their money where their mouth is, I get it. I mean, add it to the list, right? Of like injustices and fake PR spin um, that's out there in the world. But yeah, it's really upsetting. 
Yeah. And, and it's funny because somebody commented like, this is the wrong time to, to, you know, they're like, good point, wrong time to make the point. And I kind of, I get it. Wait, and I, I don't get it. Why? Because. Well, because like pandemic. everybody's worried about the pandemic. Well, you could be worried about more than one thing at once. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get it that like, maybe it's not the number one thing on everyone's priority list, but you know, all a lot of these muse- museums are going to have to financially restructure after this. A lot of things are going to change. And I'm hoping um, that they don't rebuild the same tower again. Like, I think, I think there really is an opportunity now if, if they're as fucked as they claim they are, and I'm sure they are, um, even though I can't even begin to understand like the financial structure of these major institutions and how things work with their donors and everything. But like, if they're in as much trouble as they are, it might be time to like, genuinely reconsider, reconsider these financial structures and include women this time. Hell yeah. Because there's no way that it, unless institutions get behind female artists and start buying their work and putting them into major permanent collections, there's, there, there's no way that like they're gonna, um, have the kind of value that male artists have on the market and then vice versa these auction houses like I understand that they're just selling what people are you know trying to get rid of but again like it's all interrelated you know it's kind of a I correct me if I'm wrong but it feels very like chicken or the egg situation these things are so intertwined with each other totally (laughs) anyway that was my that was my hot take this week. Um, so let's let's talk about your your favorite subject. You. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to. Well, actually, the first thing I wanted to uh, just like ask you because we all have time now is what what art are you reading about thinking about considering in the time of pandemic and how do you how do you feel the context of it is changing given our situation well I've seen on a lot of galleries instagrams that they're doing like virtual tours of artist studios and um you know they're everyone has their online viewing rooms set up and stuff like that and is utilizing their Instagram to its fullest capabilities and all of that's great. Um, I have been reading a ton of fiction because I feel like I sort of need an escape. Mm -hmm. Um, So I haven't been really catching up on any uh, research or art specific reading, but I give myself a pass um, because I think we all just kind of need to escape right now. And I've been watching a little TV, but not a ton. It's not, mm-hmm. I, I just finished Unorthodox. Have you seen that? Oh, no. Is it good? Yeah, it's really good. I really liked it. Um, I watched it in like one night. It's great. It's only five episodes, I think. So, you know, there have been a couple of those moments. And I, I guess I've just kind of come to accept that I'll never read all the books I want to in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I have stacks by my bed of things that I hope I get to. And I'm reading 
Ariel Levy's book right now, Female Chauvinist Pigs, which I just started, and I just finished Jessica Simpson's memoir and the ballet dancer David Harburg's memoir, and those were fun. How's and Jessica Simpson doing? I see. I feel for her. Is she okay? Jessica Simpson's great. Her company, she's almost billionized, and oh, she okay, um, is loving her life. I would not worry about Jessica Simpson. People were really horrible to her, and I'm sure continue to be. But, you know, misogyny is rampant in our world, and she seems to um, be laughing all the way to the bank. So good for her. Yeah. So, I don't know. I've seen uh, – there Is, is a that a term? Somebody – a company go- is billionized. I've never heard that before. Uh, maybe I, I must, made it up, but I'm I must. Smart, I so. must not know enough billionaires, Sarah. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry for you. Um, I I'm sure I picked it up somewhere. Oh, you know what is on my stack though of books I have to read? Night Street Women. Have, oh, did you I have read that, that too. I and I it's very thick, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm on chapter, I've been on chapter three since Art Basel 2019. (laughs) Yeah, I have not made my way through it either. And I just bought another book about the art world that I have to find. Hold on, because I don't remember the name. And someone told me it was good and I started reading it and it's so bad. And I was just like, can there just be one good fiction book about the world? It's called Goodbye to 10th Street by Irving Sandler. And... It's supposed the back says Sandler's novel brings to life the New York art world from the death of Jackson Pollock in 1956 to the emergence of Andy Warhol in 1962. It sounds so ideal, but it's like really sixth grade reading level, so that's a bummer. But yeah, uh, I, I what, feel like I. What's the female chauvinist pig book? It's by Ariel Levy. I don't know if you know her work. She's, she, I, I started by re- reading her memoir. Um, which is great. And she has, she's a journalist, but she's also written this book that is about the rise of raunch culture in female spheres. Uh huh. Um, you know, and this kind of like brand of empowered women who talk about gross stuff that I guess usually only men have sort of had a pass to be able to talk about. Mm-hmm. I just started it, so I can't say more than that. But she's a great writer, and she's like a really brilliant young woman. Is so. she pro? Is she pro, or is she just kind of observing it like a scientist? Like, what's her stance on it? Um. Well, I'm on page four, so oh, okay. I think that she is just more observing it than. I mean, she doesn't seem judgmental. She's really smart, so I'll get back to you. Yeah, I always. I mean, actually, I want to ask you this because I I feel like this is a real question but like how do you balance being like a feminist who also like loves Chanel and looks like a Barbie doll and you know works in the art world like how, how do you how do you construct that identity like what what ideas do you cling to what things like I mean you're not like a hairy armpit um you know mustachioed uh you know like whatever brawless (laughs) I don't know the list goes on like the the cliche of what a feminist is and I I have gone through every phase of feminism just so you know like I mean I definitely like shaved part of my head in college and didn't shave anything and 
was mm-hmm. like fuck that and like didn't wear makeup and then like and then I was professionalized and realized that like think parts of that wouldn't fly and also to be totally honest I love like girliness I love being yeah. a fucking girl I mean I think feminism for me is really all about choice and you know I think men kind of come into this world with a lot of uh, especially white men come into this world with a lot of options and without having to pay for their decisions in the same way that women do. And I think being able to choose your identity is, you know, way more uh, freeing than being kind of prescribed an identity and being told that to be a feminist or to stand up for women, you have to look a certain way is just as kind of imprisoning as, um, as anything so yeah I mean for me feminism is just about choosing to be whatever you want and for me the things that are kind of traditionally feminine have always made me really happy and I like you know get a real pleasure out of like putting makeup on and wearing pastels and all that stuff's fun for me or I wouldn't do it and mm-hmm. I don't know I mean like do I like shaving my legs not really but I really like the feeling um, when I get in clean sheets and I've just put lotion on and my legs are shaved and everything's really soft. So like, it's kind of worth it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I decided it wasn't and I got really lazy, like I probably just wouldn't do it. And I feel really lucky that I get to make those choices and I don't feel too terribly vilified for the way that I dress or anything like that. I mean, I'm sure there are people who have, discounted me or thought that I wasn't very smart because of you know that I bleach my hair or that I wear eyeliner or whatever but obviously those people aren't very smart if that's what they're judging <laughs> others on so I kind of I guess I have to take it with a grain of salt and yeah the professionalism thing is interesting because I mean I find that to it's it's so classist and shitty that people kind of force you to like dress or look a certain way um, to be in a professional environment. And something I've always really liked about the art world is that you really do see all different kinds of people in, in gallery environments, even in, mm-hmm. in museums as well. Um, and even at Gagosian, which I think is, you know, considered kind of on the corporate side of what an art gallery is, though it doesn't necessarily feel like that on the inside, you know, there are, sort of all types of people and um you know there are registrars who have wear cowboy boots and have giant beards and um I don't know I I have like such an interesting mix of really eclectic friends who work with me and there is a, a level of professionalism in in terms of like worth ac- work ethic and stuff like that but I think that you can kind of get away with a lot in the art world it's always something that I felt really lucky for like I've always felt like I could wear whatever I wanted you know as long mm-hmm. as I was clean I guess or wear my hair however I wanted or wear my like I wear like glitter on my <laughs> face at work and like I glue little you know those little sticker gems from when you yeah. were in the shapes of hearts and stuff my, my son thinks like when I put them on my face he he gets used to get really excited when he was younger and say sparkles and so I started wearing them like every day to the office and I don't know kind of no one ever looked at me twice I feel like it's sort of appreciated in the art world because there are a lot of artists who um look unconventional or dress unconventionally and so it's not Mm -hmm. like out too much and 
I've always thought that that was like a huge privilege of being in that world. It's not like I, you know, work in an investment bank or whatever the fuck they're called. And I have to wear like a suit every day at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I'm sorry that was long-winded, but feminism is really about choice to like present your own identity, however it is that makes you comfortable to be. Mm -hmm. Well, what I really like about being a woman, which some people might think is like constricting and is that there is sort of a drag element that exists or like a camp element. And I think that just, you know, as you know, camp is uh, self, uh, self-aware and we are aware there are gender performances that happen totally every yeah. single day. And I, and I love like stepping into that performance when I want to step into it. And like, yes. I, you know, a lot of my art friends, I've had like cognitive dissonance both ways because like, because I studied and trained as an artist for seven years, but then quickly like had to work in a professional realm and go to certain events and, you know, speak a certain way and comport myself a certain way. It was like, I, I always feel like it's a little bit like dress up, like obviously, you know, even today home alone day, I don't know, 8,000 in quarantine, I like got up and, you know, put a silk dress on and braided my hair and, you know, put on some jewelry and wore a little lipstick, you know, and it was like fun for me because I was like, this is who I want to be today. And then I've definitely had those other days during quarantine where it was like pajamas, you know, three, three yeah. days in a row. <laughs> um, I mean, duh, but yeah, I think like, this is why we love Cindy Sherman, right? Like the performative act of being a woman and kind of getting to uh, choose your own adventure and think about the costume that you want to wear to project the identity you want people to think you have into the world is um, at once like very fun and I find it personally entertaining but can also be kind of oppressive and obviously there's a dark side to it too Mm -hmm. um and as I've become like more empowered as I've aged and started kind of like giving less of a fuck because I guess I can now uh (laughs) I definitely have gotten more comfortable with like just kind of owning the way that I want to dress and want to look and I recognize that that isn't possible for everyone you know and I, I don't know what I would say to someone who was like, you know, I don't have the job security you do and I have to look mm-hmm. a certain way at my work and I get that, but I've always really liked about the art world that you can kind of pretend at least to be who you want to be. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so weird because on one hand, I, okay, I remember... <laughs> So when I first started working at galleries, I thought like, and I did not have proper, like you've had kind of proper training from the beginning, whereas I like, no, I did not. And I like the first gallery that I worked at, I will not say where, um, like the, the director and I, like, we, we were like little party animal wild bitches you know and like eating mushrooms and then like leaving the gallery to go swim naked and like like, I mean we were like 
we were like living in this like other universe um fun it was it was summertime I will say so it wasn't as gallery hours aren't as strict but I mean we were you were irresponsible we were irresponsible (laughs) that is like understatement of the fucking year but then um I moved to New York and I remember I was gallery sitting and some people were in the gallery and a friend of mine came in and I was like laughing because I the night before I'd gone out and I we both had gone out the night before and like we were really wasted and I was like laughing so hard and I was just like I love the art world I can just be myself I can be free whatever and then like two hours later uh my boss at the time like came in and was like you know that this is a profession, a place, a professional place, right? And I was like, yeah, but like kind of also genuinely confused and being like, yeah, but it's an art gallery. And she was like, so there were some very serious collectors who were in the gallery when apparently you were having this like very open conversation about like being wasted the night before. And like she repeated the conversation almost verbatim back to me. She was like, people are listening you offended these collectors and they have decided not to purchase the work because of your behavior in the gallery. (laughs) And I was so mortified. I, I, that was like, that was like New York lesson. Number one, like you have to sort of behave. And, And then it, as I worked for more and more galleries, I realized it was actually quite conservative despite the fact that like people are, you know, dressing up or have cool haircuts or have interesting hair colors or maybe a tattoo or a piercing. But like, in fact, the like business of art is very serious. Well, the business of art is very serious because obviously there's a lot of money being thrown around and collectors usually aren't as um, maybe eccentric or bohemian as artists and as the people who work in art. And also I think like gallerists are tasked with this very important responsibility which is representing artists and their work when they can't be there um that being said I think there's like kind of a time and a place for everything right and I think that you should totally go out and get wasted if you want to do that maybe just like talk about it more quietly in when you're at work (laughs) or something but (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, there are things that are conservative about the art world, but I would say, like, that compared to most other worlds, um, there are people who really get away with a lot. And, I mean, the only thing that I have found disappointing is that I feel that men in the art world get away with a different amount than women in the art world. So, ooh, say more. <laughs> well, I don't know that I can tell you, like, any specific examples off the top of my head, but... I think that, um, I mean, this is like obviously purely anecdotal and I'm going to make up something, but I think that we've all been to like a party in Miami Basel or something, right? Mm -hmm. And we've all seen like 10 art dealer dudes who are, you know, like completely wasted and having the time of their lives. And I don't think that it's, like that for like I never felt the freedom to be that way as a woman I mean I certainly think you 
being young and partying with a colleague who is also a woman at the gallery is obviously very standard, but I never felt like in a professional setting, I could like really let loose. But I always felt like I was looking around me at all of these men who didn't seem nervous at all to do so. And I don't think that's particular to the art world. I mean, I think that double standards kind of exist anywhere, right? And mm-hmm. um, I just, I've always felt like I had to be the first person at the office and I had to be on my game all of the time. And I could go to art world parties and enjoy them, but I couldn't be embarrassing or call attention to myself. But I would see around me that there were men who had many jobs in the art world and, you know, not particularly at my gallery necessarily, but all over the place who, um, who like didn't even seem concerned about those things. Yeah. But I Hmm. think that's just the world in general. I don't think that that's particular to the art world. Yeah. I don't know. I was, I was really like, this is the calmest I've ever been. Um, You know, and I'm pretty open about the fact that I'm sober now, but I definitely was like, pretty wild um for like the major I mean I'm only eight months sober I I mean I it definitely slowed down as I got older but um especially when I was in New York and working in the art world I was I was pretty crazy um and I did I, I think I kind of prided myself on like hanging with the boys because and like not sleeping with them, you know, because I kind of thought that I was like proving, like proving, I had something to prove, you know? Yeah, well, um, we all want to be the cool girl who like gets to hang with the boys. I mean, mm-hmm. you were, you were performing the cool girl. I get that. Yeah. And, and it, in the end, it was like something that I just like couldn't keep up with. And I definitely, you know, witnessed things, you know, not necessarily, some of it happened to me, some of it happened to my friends. And the thing that I always thought was like, interesting was some of these men, you know, in public were like, so politically correct. And then you get they they get wasted. And all of a sudden, you know, like, I don't know this like idea of locker room talk, that, you know, Donald Trump, use that term to defend himself with the whole grabber by the you know what like that is real and I don't know if that will ever like go away because okay this is not an artist at your gallery um or no well I'm not gonna say the person's name anyway but there there's this artist um and actually not that long ago I met this like incredibly beautiful young woman who was telling me that, you know, she like sleeps with him. And this guy is like grandpa, like gross. But, you know, he has this reputation as like a party boy and all, but he's not a boy anymore. Side notes, like not a boy, old man, Um, you know, and and we were talking and I was trying really hard to not be judgmental, right? Like not come into that conversation with like my, my version of feminism, which is that like, that is gross and weird. But so I tried to be open with her. I really tried to listen to her, but at the end it, it, it 
even though she was really intelligent and didn't come across as a dumbass to me, I still felt like a spade calling a spade a spade. Like you are just screwing him because he is so-and-so and he flies you places and puts you up in expensive hotels and introduces you to fancy people. Um, there's like no way that you're like looking deeply into his soul and like truly like enjoying being with this man. And I don't know, there, there just is that like rock star thing that is very real that happens in the art world. And it's not just the artists, like the dealers, because like the dealers are like art star adjacent, if not their own like version of rock stars, like they get treated the same way. And then you see the, these like cycles of how they treat women and it's usually younger women and it's women that like may or may not know what they're getting themselves into. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know the, I don't know who you're talking about, obviously. And I don't know who that woman is. Um, I would say that there are much, there are much fewer routes for women to find success and power in this world than there are for men. And I don't know um, that women can really ever, even the most successful, rich woman in the world, I don't know that compared to her, um, you know, someone who had commensurate power, who was a, a man, if it would really feel ever like a fair comparison. Um, so I try like really not to judge women who make those kinds of decisions that maybe you or I wouldn't, because I think like we're all just trying to live our best life and a lot of us have really limited options and women in general in particular have limited options. So I don't know who she is. I don't know why she's doing what she's doing, but um, more than anything, I guess I just like sort of feel sorry for anyone that feels like they uh, have to make that decision in order yeah. to have like some semblance of control or power over their world where they're probably marginalized most of the time. Um, and I think those, the your observation about locker room talk or whatever is really astute because I've always found a huge hypocrisy of the world in general to be that there are these men that like I hear them unquote you know without questioning themselves at all the way they talk about women is like really objectifying and really um kind of rehashes all the tired cliches we've heard about you know this woman's dumb or all these misogynist terms that you know get thrown around like it's no big deal mm -hmm. um but then they all like put on Instagram about how much they hate Donald Trump and I'm like yeah. okay but like aren't you kind of the same like I know it's a matter of degree and like he's objectively horrible and you know you maybe have a lot of great qualities but like I don't really think that you're all that different if you are still dehumanizing people even in kind of small ways and without being self-aware at all mm -hmm. um, or empathetic at all and I do see that a lot you know I see these people who like couldn't imagine voting for someone like him who exhibit these behaviors that kind of show me that deep down they're a lot closer to him than they would ever admit to themselves yeah yeah it's I, I mean it's very 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 interesting and that you know this episode is not like if there's if we have any male listeners anymore <laughs> you know this isn't like to um 
sit and like hate on men for their role in the art world. But actually, I think the disparity is something that I just realized and it's right here, which is kind of what we were even talking about with like clothes and like what it means to perform the feminine, which is like we have to constantly take so much consideration into like what our social performance is. Um, of course, it's a professional fear um and for whatever reason men don't have to do that they don't have to you know it, the most perfect example is like man spreading on the subway like i mean it's just a little it's a little sit thing but like women were taught like sit there you know your purse on your lap put your legs together sit up straight, be vigilant, pay attention to people who are around you, be considerate, be this, be that. And then you have these like dudes that bowl you over and push you out of the way to get on the subway and then like spread their legs out. And you're just like, what the fuck? There's no self-awareness here. And that extends further into, you know, like professional settings where I hear and I see men and listen, I'm not trying to like censor everyone, but like you see men do and act these ways that if a woman acted that way, she would be labeled like a horrible bitch, monster, sexual predator, scary, you know. Um, but then like men do it in the art, in every world, but I see it mostly in the art world. And it's like, you know, like these guys will come up in conversations between other people and they'll just like kind of people will kind of smirk and roll their eyes and be like, oh, well, yeah, well, you know, so-and-so. And And it's like, oh, it's just this cute little personality trait instead of something that like they could maybe consider reeling in because they're creating disparity. It's the boys will be boys mentality. And I mean, you said a minute ago that you don't know if any men are even listening to this anymore. Um, and I don't really care about that if they are or they are not, because I think that any man who is listening to it and to, you know, put up with all of the stuff we've already said is probably like already kind of on our team, you know, mm-hmm. if they're like still in it this far. And if something that we've said they found offensive, um, and they're uncomfortable with it, then they're probably part of the problem. And I don't think this podcast is going to change their minds. I think that, um, you know, I really do implicate most of the men that we probably know in our lives in as being part of this problem, because I don't see many of them like really actively doing anything to change the way the world works. And the world is not set up to really function for women. Mm -hmm. So I think unless you're a man who's like, out there being a really active feminist and trying to change the world and make it better, like on a daily basis, then you're you can't sit with us you know but like how does it how does it actually change like what does it mean for a man to actively be a feminist in your mind well I think that they have to examine their biases and when they um you know work with women or encounter women in their daily lives they have to be self-aware enough on I mean this is on a pretty micro level be self-aware enough to um critique if they are treating a woman the same way they would treat a man with similar qualifications or issues or problems. Um, I think that they also have to participate in kind of 
systemic injustice, you know, correcting systemic injustices as well. So like if you're in a position of power at a gallery or a museum and you have the opportunity to hire three new people, I think it's worth it to, you know, make it a priority for yourself to make sure that they're women or that they're minorities. And that like might take you longer. That might be slower. It might take you an extra six weeks of looking through resumes before you can, you know, um, find someone who fits the bill for you and is brings diversity to your team. But I think like forcing yourself to be aware of those inequities and addressing them like, as best as you can um, should be kind of a priority for anyone who is in a position where they're able to do so. It's like kind of a noblesse oblige idea, you know, like if you're lucky enough that you get to hire people, you should make it your mission to hire people who maybe don't like already have insane access to those types of jobs. So I don't know. I mean, those are just, I guess, kind of small examples of um, how uh, men can kind of be on our team. But like, I've really felt lucky at Gagosian because Larry is just so gender neutral. And I mean, there are many women at the top there who have direct access to him and who are in positions of power. And in turn, it has been like a very friendly place in a lot of ways towards younger women. And like, I've always felt like I had a lot of female mentors there um, mm -hmm. who were, you know, uh, 10 or 20 years older than me who Larry really trusted. And I don't think that would be possible in an organization where the man at the top was, you know, promoting men who had accomplished less than women, than, you know, their, their mm -hmm. uh, peers who were women. Um, and I think he's like, uh, kind of amazing example and I, I don't know how he got this way but I mean I assume it's just because he's so incredibly results oriented but I think he's a great example of how to like really not let bias that's sort of inherent in all of us through our cultural training of our lives um, how to not let that influence the way you look at people and I think like a lot of times just even okay wait oh, wait 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 sorry I'm because you're you're making my brain explode right now and I because this goes back to our last conversation, too, which is like, okay, you're in a results-oriented situation, um, but, like, you're a mother. So, like, how do you, like, yeah, you've got, so like, a little is. tiny person yeah. who's, like, beyond dependent on you. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you turn around? And I mean this genuinely, not, like, in a, like, in like some like Vogue magazine, like let's pretend your life is like perfect. And I know it's not because you're writing the book, but it's like, how do you actually, how do you actually do it? How do you be a results oriented person and care for a child? And the reason I'm asking this is because some of my best friends, just like you, like they have kids and the, and some of these women were like at the top of their game for a bunch of different careers, uh, fields. And then they had their kids and I've watched them and they've all receded back. And when I talk to them, they're like, I don't give a shit. Like I'm so in love with my kid and they need so much of my time and so much of my attention. And like, I let the job go and like you haven't. And I'm just very perplexed, like how you do it. I mean, I think the world is inherently harder for women. 
Um, and I think that the burden and responsibility of being the primary caregiver for your child and the primary like housekeeper for your home. And I mean that in all senses, like, you know, not just actual cleaning, but making schedules and making sure everyone's fed and like all of the intricacies that come with um, having a family. I mean, science studies show that most of that burden falls on women um, and that women do the majority of unpaid labor in familial relationships. And like, I, I don't know why we're not all rioting in the streets, but I, we've all just been kind of conditioned to accept this as our fate, I guess. And like, I think that most women and particularly women with the responsibility of children probably work harder than most men. I don't like have a study to prove that, but it's really fucking hard to juggle it all. And I totally get why people choose to not stay in the workforce. The glass ceiling is very thick and it is pervasive and it rears its head in so many ways and in different ways for every person, every job and every field. Um, I don't know. I mean, what's allowed me to be able to do it is that um, I have a fairly flexible schedule, which is a privilege and is really rare and not everyone can or will have in their lifetime. And I think that is part of a huge glass ceiling. And I think Larry allowing people to have a flexible schedule and being really like modern like that um, has. What does flexible mean? Does flexible mean you don't have to be there 10 to six, five days a week? No one checks if I'm sitting at my desk at 10 a.m. No one checks if I have to run out so I can take my kid to a doctor's appointment or pick him up at school or, Mm -hmm. you know, if I want to be home for bath time. I have to be present for meetings and, um, you know, certain duties that I have in the office. But aside from that, I feel like I'm treated like an adult who is allowed to as long as I'm performing, do business in the geographical locations and at the times that are best for me. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I end up spending a lot of time in the office because I like being with the team that I work with. I think FaceTime is really important. I have a lot of materials there. There's a research library there, you know, for kind of logistical reasons or whatever. I'm there often, but I know I have like this safety net, right, that I can leave if I need to. And I have like a fabulous assistant who is practically like my right hand in every way and I know that I can rely on other people and the gallery is really set up for that so Mm -hmm. that is the only way that I've been able to do it and my husband by virtue of the kind of work he does also has a fairly flexible schedule we both work all the time but we he can be his you know he's his own boss so um it's allowed us to have one child. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like if you have two or three. And I think mm-hmm. that, um, I think, you know, making those sorts of like very personal decisions about your family and your life, um, is really complicated by the fact that a lot of jobs and opportunities are extremely limiting for women who also want to be mothers. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's a, several reasons, you know, personal reasons why I've that's never happened, but I can't I mean, honestly, Sarah, I feel like I'm just becoming a person now, like somewhat self-actualized and like oh you my know, God, taking it's me so long. I'm yeah, older than you and it like just happened for me. And by the way, one other thing I should say is aside from the fact that I have a fairly flexible schedule, I have a lot of help because I'm fucking rich. And like, that is 
it, it, it's insane that 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 is what it takes to like get through yeah and I don't like I I can't imagine what it's like to do it with less resources than I have and I think that it's like it's devastating to me I hate thinking about that I hate that there are women who have to take themselves out of the workforce I mean it's not good for anyone it's not good for men it's not good for anyone in the world that 50% of the population is a woman who at one point in her life will most likely be have to make the decision whether she wants a family or not and that most of the time it will impact her ability to like generate capital for her family. I think that that is like a profoundly and inherently unfair, you know, idea to rest on women's shoulders and that Mm -hmm. you have to be like very well off to afford to be able to do it and keep a job is, Mm -hmm. you know, a way to just, I think, keep women really marginalized and it's a huge bummer. And Obviously, I do not have the answer for that, but like, I'm glad we're talking about it because I definitely don't think it will change if people don't talk about it. And I have like an incredible support system. I mean, my family's not in New York, and I think if I lived in Indiana, I, you know, I would have my mom and my sister, and it's a different lifestyle where you maybe don't need a nanny because you have, you know, that kind of built in help in Mm -hmm. your network in your family. But it's not like that in New York for me. So I spend a lot of money to have people that I trust that are wonderful members of my family who um, can take care of my kid. Yeah. You know what? Thanks for being real about that because, like, I just gave a a webinar, I don't know, um, lecture, and they asked me not that question, but they basically asked me, like, do you need to be independently wealthy to actually even be an artist? And to some extent, I think the answer is yes. And a lot of people, I mean, wealth is relative, right? Like I, you know, I don't know what's in your bank account. um, But like, I know that I have a lot of privilege, even if the privilege was just that I was extended a certain line of credit to like study in art school. You know what I mean? Like I know that I'm privileged to a certain extent that way. Um, and you know, the people were like asking in this webinar, like, do you need money to like even be an artist? And I thought about it and like the answer is kind of yes. It is yes. Because if you think about it, like, okay, you need to live in New York or you need to live in LA or you need to live really close to those places. Right. Um, you need to be able to create bodies of work for years and not be dependent on whether or not you're going to sell it just to like find vision and find a voice and create a universe that people want to in turn buy into. Then you need, you know, and so that means you need to be able to like pay rent and not think about sales, not think about anything and like just make work and and be free to do studio visits and be able to go to parties and be able to go on artist residencies and take trips and like you need to be able to do all these things. And then on top of it, like, you know, in the most expensive cities in the world. And most people now think that believe, I don't think this is true. I want to dispel this rumor, but a lot of people think you have to have an MFA 
And, and, you know, to get a BFA and an MFA, you're, you're basically at $200,000 in education. I mean, I think money obviously really ups your chances of being successful at like most things in our sick, twisted world and being an artist is one of them. Do I think it's an absolute necessity? No, but I think you would be the anomaly if you were able to find success without any of it or without any sort of relative wealth or privilege, because I don't know that like going to parties and stuff like that really helps that much, but I definitely think, and I, and I, most artists I know didn't come out of school, um, you know, already famous artists or already successful or already able to make art instead of um, having another primary job. Mm -hmm. Most of the most, most of the successful artists I know, and I know pretty much all, you know, all the living ones. Yeah, I know. I I have personal <laughs> relationships with many of the living ones, and most of them did waited tables or did whatever jobs while they were trying to be artists. And yeah, it was harder for some of them than it was for others, and some of them got money from their parents, and some of them didn't. Um, but I think the idea, like in anything else, in our like capitalist society the idea of someone coming from absolutely nothing and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and achieving like mainstream success and wealth is um if it happens at all if it's not a total myth is a real anomaly and is like next to impossible okay so this is what I was saying in the lecture I was saying the problem is is that like and I'm going to speak for myself like I watched way too much sex in the city and I watched you know, way too many movies about like my New York in like the eighties, you know? Um, but like those are all movies about the exceptions. And then the other side of it is that there is the rule. And the, the reason the exception to the rule is so exciting is because it's, it's an underdog story and we love to see people succeed and triumph and beat the bad guys and come out of things. But the reality is, is that they are the exception and generally the rule and the cliche of the starving artist exists because it is so unlikely it's going to happen in their lifetime. And it's so fucking expensive to, to make it happen. I mean, if you look, my husband always says, if you look statistically at, um, at the numbers, you are more likely to be a major league baseball pitcher than you are to be a working successful artist in New York city or in America. And like the odds are very much stacked against you. And I know that you were going to at one point ask me a question of what I saw, like the art world of the future to look yes. like. Uh-huh. And I mean, I don't want to skip ahead, but I think that it's really ties into this because Um, I think about that a lot. And like, as you know, I work with a couple of arts nonprofits that I think directly sort of address that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that in a really ideal world in, uh, you know, we we exist currently in this like very late capitalist system that um, is pretty exploitative. And, you know, I have a lot of critiques of it and of most economic systems, um, of course, but particularly this one. And I think to make the art world a more kind of equitable and just place, it would be wonderful to see a lot more money go to nonprofits and grassroots organizations who are um, 
capable of making spaces for artists to do work even in cities that are really expensive like New York. And it would be great if that came from, um, you know, private donors. It would be also wonderful if it came from government funding. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's like historically in America, the, the laws, um, are not favorable to art and artists. I mean, it's a little bit more favorable in, in Europe and a little bit more favorable in states like California, but by and large, um, I think, you know, more progressive governmental regulations about art and uh, protection for artists and more money for arts organizations and rent subsidization for art spaces. Um, you know, I think not only having like massive blue chip monolithic, huge white box galleries is a real shame because it doesn't give a lot of um young artists opportunities to show their work before they're able to make, you know, 20 paintings to cover the walls of these spaces. Like, I think it's ridiculous that New York City doesn't have a vacancy tax and you can walk around to any neighborhood and see all of these for rent signs in these commercial spaces that could be like pop-up galleries. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that most landlords are, um, you know, they're trying to get by like the rest of us, but there's no, there's nothing in, um, in New York City's laws and there's nothing in the kind of general like you know culture that um, supports this idea of like art being all around us aside from these public arts organizations and like it would be really cool if there was this vacancy tax so all of these um, you know landlords who had empty commercial ground floor spaces decided to like let artists do something cool in them I mean think about how much more of a beautiful and like a free city New York would feel like if you got to see that much art all the time. And, and since that's not happening, I think it's like really important that these public arts programs kind of step in and allow the city to still retain some of what, like we all wanted it to be like when we moved to New York, which was being able to see art and artistic ideas um, outside of the box thinking all over the place. Right. Okay. So here, here's a question that I did have in my original questions for you. And I think it ties perfectly into this. Um, The question originally was like, how do you reconcile your feelings of capitalism with your love for art? But to like, even sort of push that question even further like because this world that you're talking about is cool to me like in my mind I'm like oh yes spaces blah 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 but like young artists need to figure out how to eat and get paid and do things and I'm I'm just like wondering like the relationship of art and capitalism is always going to be super complicated but like does it should it have a relationship period like I'm trying to imagine what it is you're actually saying because the the ultimate dream right is like that you get picked up in the capitalist system and your work becomes highly valuable and you become like this uh cultural treasure that's you know kept and collected for you know, a thousand years. Um, and, and capitalism is ultimately what insulates art. So I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. This is amazing. Public art. This is amazing. This is amazing. But like, ultimately what, how do you reconcile all these things? Well, it's obviously super complicated. And I think that, um, 
I don't know that it's every artist's dream to like make it in a capitalist system and be, you know, publicly lauded and a art world celebrity. I think if you're making art to be famous or rich, you um, are probably barking up the wrong tree. And I don't know any successful artists who make art or ever made art for those purposes. And I think that like my husband says, and like a lot of other artists I know, if making art were, um, you know, completely illegal and punishable by death, they would still probably do, like, they would still do it. Mm -hmm. They would have to do it. It's not an option for them. It's, you know, almost an urge the way like sleeping or eating or something is a human necessity. They feel that way about art. So, um, but of course, money is this terrible system by which we all live and die. And that's our reality. Um, and I think, I mean, there are good things about the capitalist system. Like I, you know, work for arguably the greatest example of the um, marriage of art and commodity culture um, mm -hmm. by working at Gagosian. And Larry has made more artist dreams come true than probably anyone on planet Earth. And he mm -hmm. funds massive projects and he gives liberally to museums all over the world to for for artists that we work with to see their projects come to fruition and um you know of course he runs a business his eye is ultimately on the bottom line but I've participated in many exhibitions where artists have had completely wild ideas that he's funded without question and um has not worried about budgets and you know kind of bourgeois ideals like that I guess mm -hmm. so it's not like in a capitalist system, if a person is responsible and sympathetic, they can't accomplish things that are also in line with, I think, a very positive vision of the way the arts can exist in our current world. Mm -hmm. But I think that with, you know, like rampant exploit, you can see how this, how a capitalist society would, could end up with there being very little art of value any art of real meaning anywhere um you know you can kind of you can see the worst case scenario and I think Larry is the best case scenario so I feel like I've been in kind of this weird position where on the one hand I'm in this like bastion of you know really expensive art as luxury good but I'm also uh working for someone who has made made the capitalist world kind of benefit art the best it possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like artists are, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's the ideal world, I guess, is where artists are just like more supported because I think that people have to respect that so many important like political movements and ideas um, and ways of thinking that, have kind of become mainstream and normal now, but were once really super radical, a lot of that starts with art, right? And like, we, I mean, we need art in our lives, not just for its beauty and for like the soothing aspects of it, but also because artists are really uniquely positioned. I mean, they look at the world in a really different way than the rest of us, and therefore they can solve problems in really different ways than the rest of us. And mm -hmm. we like need that kind of problem solving in our world and the fact that, um, that the, you know, our systems aren't set up to really support artists, I think is like at detriment to all of us. So no matter what economic system it's within, I think the ideal is just where artists can be supported enough that, you know, 
it's even an opportunity, an option for them to make work, whether it be yeah. a, a second job, you know, if they, they, it's fine to have two jobs, it's fine to be a waitress or an elevator repairman or whatever your other job is during the day, as long as you're not working three jobs and still not able to make your ends meet and still not able to make art in your garage on Sundays or whatever. And I think like, that's where the world is. Like we hear stories all the time about people who are, you know, minimum wage is obviously, as we all know, not a living wage and certainly not a just wage. And that means that there are huge swaths of the population who could never imagine following any artistic pursuits because they literally don't have any downtime. Mm -hmm. And a world where like that looks different is already more sympathetic to the arts like a world where everyone has health care and a certain level of a safety net is a world where um people can you know like have a little more freedom and free time and opportunity to make art and that just makes the world like better and interesting for the rest of us so I don't know why we wouldn't want to support that but yeah well that was that was very 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 well put in um I, I buy your argument a hundred percent. I mean, okay. I, I'm, I, I'm not, um, I don't know. I, I really like having this conversation because it's forcing me to re-examine my own prejudices again of, of, of myself. Right. Because, you know, I didn't set out and I admit this, everybody knows this, so it's not a big deal for me to even say this on the podcast, but like, I trained as an artist. I studied as an artist. I My identity has always been first and foremost as an artist. But I came into a system in the United States that was extremely unsupportive towards that. And I, I was the person that had three jobs. I mean, I was a registrar four days a week at a gallery. Uh, and then I was a waitress. And then I was also somebody's like online personal assistant. And I ran a project space out of my house and tried to have an art practice and, you know, whatever. Um, and I basically was like so poor shamed, basically, um, into like no longer sort of like believing in certain parts of myself as an artist and that I was actually contributing something to society. And actually I feel extremely vulnerable talking about this right now. And this is like super real talk, you know, that like mm -hmm. I lost like a certain amount of faith in myself, in my own ideals and in my own beliefs, because I was like, well, if there is no money to get behind this as evidence or as hard concrete proof that like these ideas and this way of life is like valid for other people or for the world or for the world that I live in, then like it must not be true. And I sort of like undercut myself a lot. And obviously I'm still in the art world. I've never left the art world and I work with other artists and I'm, I still kind of, you know, I write and I do identify as an artist now. I just not a, you know, I don't make objects that people buy. Um, but it's very touching for me to hear someone like you who does work with like art production fund and recess and, you know, you should talk more about that in a minute. But like, I, I, I'm glad to know that the ideal behind what you're talking about is actually about public art. And that doesn't just mean like a mural on a wall as public art, but that like you believe 
that we need to make the world a better place for art to exist because, you know, after I left academia and I was in the cold, hard world where I needed to figure out how to pay my student loans back, pay rent, feed myself and compete. It was just, it's, it, it made me uh, lose a little bit of myself. Yeah, I think that that's really common and you have to be incredibly brave to be an artist because you're really living outside of um, the norms of like what our society is willing to support at, at this moment in time. And I think that's a huge shame um, because like I said, I think artists provide really invaluable services for civilized societies. And I, you, I think you said the word poor shamed. Yeah, I yeah. I don't know if I just I invented that, but I, I I mean I think there's like a, there is this huge barrier to entry um, that you know wealth and snobism um, plays a big part in I think the elite levels of any world and the art worlds of course maybe more than anywhere else. And I'm like really bummed to hear that for you, but I completely understand that feeling and I don't know how to combat that, but, um, but no, listen, I'm not, I'm not in, I'm not in poverty and I'm not, and I know people have it way worse than me again to check my privilege, you know, but if I'm somebody who other people would look at and be like, she must be privileged because she's blonde and she's white and she has this education and she worked at Gagosian and she's done all these things. And it's been so fucking hard for me. Like I cannot imagine how hard it is for other people. Right. Totally. Yeah. Sucks. <laughs> Awkward pause. I know. I like I don't know what to say. I mean, I think the world is really stacked against people who like don't have money. It's it's not it's not something that I'm happy about, but um aside from doing what I can to like, you know, support organizations that do a lot for artists and, you know, for our community, I like I I'm not sure what and aside from voting and like getting all of my friends to vote and mm-hmm. everyone I am that I can reach to vote. I don't know what all there is to do. Right. So can you, can you tell our listeners and me um, besides my loose Googling, like a little bit about uh, what you've done with recess and what you've done with art production fund? Because I think that um, they have been working. I know Art Art Production Fund has done some pretty amazing things, and oh, they're incredible. I mean, I feel so lucky and blessed that I get to do nonprofit work, and especially with those organizations. Um, I'm also involved with American Ballet Theater. Ballet's another love of mine, um, and it's um, even possibly more poorly funded than other parts of the art world. Um, but I we were talking about public art earlier and I have always thought that public art doesn't have to be like a, you know, crappy mural on a wall. And Mm -hmm. I have learned through my experience with these organizations that um, even people who aren't like maybe formally educated or who don't know a lot about art or the art world or who, um, you know, aren't reading philosophy and 
stuff like that all the time they're bored by boring art the same way someone like (laughs) you or me is bored by boring art and Mm -hmm. for public art to really work it has to be like rigorous and it has to have real integrity and it has to be it has to be good and the two organizations that I work with art production fund and recess both put together like really strong public art that isn't fake it's not pandering to lowest common denominator it's um you know of very high standards and it's about often about really important issues and I think that that is kind of what has attracted me to those two nonprofits. I mean, mm-hmm. Art Production Fund has done so many amazing projects, but everyone I feel like has seen on Instagram by now, Ugo Rondonone's project in California, Seven Magic Mountains, and um, the Elm Green and Drag set Prada of Marfa, which is like mm-hmm. incredibly iconic. And, you know, those are just two examples. They do projects all year round and have for, I don't know, is it 15 years that they've been in existence, 20 years, but they're amazing. And recess gives grants. Um, it's a submission based grant program. They give grants of, uh, a stipend and a space for an artist to make art that is engaged with social justice. Um, the space is available to them for one to three months and it's in our, um, our, our, our headquarters in Brooklyn. And, um, Recess also operates what is called a court diversion program. There are many such programs all over the country and in New York City um, where young adults ages 18 to 21, 18 to 23, I think, um, who have committed a low-level felony or misdemeanors can avoid prison time by completing internships and court-mandated training. And Recess does that training in the arts. It's the only such program in New York. City oh, my God. Amazing. It's really cool. So we've graduated in the you know three and a half, four years that this program has been in existence. We've graduated close to 200 young adults who have been able to avoid prison time by doing their court-mandated training at um, Recess headquarters. And then we give them skill sets that apply to arts-related positions like, you know, um, art creating, frame making, silk screening, and we match them with internships in the arts. And then we pay for them to have an internship so that there's no financial hardship on the hiring institution. And wow. all the, time, the young adults end up getting hired at those places. And, you know, a lot of them have never had access to the art world before. Mm-hmm. They never thought that there was a place for them in it. They never thought that, um, they never had entered a museum or a gallery or an art space and mm-hmm. could not imagine themselves, um, didn't even know that the job of artist is a job that existed that you could make money doing mm-hmm. at, at all. And it really helps them reimagine their own narrative to know that all of that is a possibility. And reimagining your own narrative is so much a part about escaping the kind of brutal, um, you know, prison pipeline that so many marginalized folks face um so I and oh and a really cool thing about recess also is that the um 
the artists who receive grants and who work, um, who, who make their art and display their art in our um, ground floor gallery of our headquarters in Brooklyn, work mm-hmm. with the kids, it, with the young adults in that prison diversion program. And they, you know, teach them about their art and they, they, the young adults help them make their project. And it's a really cool symbiosis. And it just goes to show you how absolutely powerful art and art making can be. I mean, we literally have changed 200 people's lives and aided them in saving themselves from being trapped in this like really gross system that's absolutely stacked against them in every way. And Mm -hmm. like, it just shows you how absolutely functional art can be, right? Like Mm -hmm. these, these kids who never thought that the art world had a place for them end up reimagining their entire lives thanks to the art world wow I'm speechless that's amazing that's really amazing and I mean if if that doesn't make you think that art is like you know really valid and worthwhile then I don't know what would it's like (laughs) so important Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Sarah you're so amazing I feel like I'm a rapper forever, but I, I know like people, I mean, damn. We lost the men like 10 minutes in, and then we, we lost. Great. If you're listening still now at one hour and 32 minutes, you're our super fans. We love you too. Maybe we, maybe we like chop off the first part and just dive right into when it got really good because, um, <laughs> We don't need the men, though. We don't need them. I'm telling you. we The only men we need are the ones who have listened to this entire thing and are into it, right? Yeah. If you're a man and you're still listening to this and you're single, hit me. No, I'm just kidding. Literally. DM me. Um, and, and you're, and you're straight. Yeah, please. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay. You. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, God. God. You got you late, girl. I'd be so proud of myself. Yeah. Um, okay. I know we got to go. But that was yeah. Really that was so good. I mean, I don't know. I'm just going to – I think we should just have, like, some kind of semi-standing uh, podcast appointment because I love talking to you so much. And you, you know, you challenged my – you know, you, you challenged me tonight and you made me – like, I mean, genuinely, and I don't want to get back into it because we do have to wrap up, but, like y- – it it's been a long time since anybody has jogged this realization in me that i have created my own system of like basic like cuz i'm we're working really hard on myself right now and i'm doing the artist way right now all these things oh, and i've realized that i'm really clogged up i'm i'm creatively constipated and i realized that like a lot of it is because i have shitty ideas about like capital and art and i never thought a director at gagosian would like shake me <laughs> at my fucking core about something that is is so important because i do think i have something to contribute to the world and i know that i need to to shed some of these unhealthy ideas about money and art and what the power of art actually is so don't we all I really thank you for the conversation I mean that of course so fun and we still haven't talked about our (laughs) you know 
uh, are like tricks for coping and being creative and efficient, but we'll get there. We'll just like do this once a month or something. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sending you lots of love in New York and we'll talk again soon. Okay. Have a good night.